One Hope Church. Glad to see you um, this morning. So this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 10 uh, this morning. Uh, last week we hit a few verses at the end of 9. You may want to go back and, and read some great verses of, uh, of faith and of example for us in the lives um, of people who were faithful uh, to the Lord. But in that uh, lesson, we end up with Peter um, in the city of Joppa, um, and he's staying there for a little while, uh, but he won't be staying there for long, as we'll see in chapter 10. There's an event that happens that's kind of um, um, earth-shaking for him in a very positive way, and um, in a very positive way for the lives of other people as well. And so we're going to get into that this morning. Let's go ahead and go to Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the text and um, get right into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning, to be together, um, to be in your presence together, God. That truly is a a good, good thing. It's a wonderful blessing uh, for us. And so as we... This morning, uh, look into your word. We pray that you would use, a, use it to instruct us, to inform us, to change our hearts and our minds, to show us things about ourselves and our own cultures that we may not have really thought about before, or at least start that process. Um, and Lord, that you would, through it all, make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Um, and in order to do that, Lord, we know we have to continuously surrender ourselves uh, before you. Surrender our minds, our hearts, our, our wants, our desires, our um, all sorts of things, you know, the good and the bad, Lord. But we have to surrender it all to you and understand that we are yours and that, Jesus, you are our Savior and our King. Help us to live that way. Um, help us to live that way. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's just jump right in here because we have a, a little ways to go. A lot of it's, um, you know, narratives. It's a, it's a really cool story. Uh, but it begins in chapter 10, verse 1, where it talks about it. It says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And so when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Uh, let's stop, stop there for just a moment to make sure we have you know, the setting and the scene. Um, you know, at this time, we are, we are still in the land of Israel, uh, but that's an occupied land, again, by the Roman Empire. And so this centurion, his, you know, that really means you know, somebody who's in charge of at least 100 men. Um, you know, our word century comes from the same, you know, same root. And it says he's from what's called the Italian regiment. Um, you know, now, not all in the Roman Empire 
um, who were soldiers were were Italian, you know, from that area of what we we know as Italy, um, because they hired people from many different places, you know, in their in their military. Um, but uh, it seems you know he's he's from a you know a place he's he's not near his here his home, and he's he's in a different land than what he grew up in. Um, and what's clearly evident is that even though he is part of the dominant Force. He's part of the, the Roman Empire with all of its gods, which were really just, you know, they just changed the names of the Greek gods and adopted them from their, from their own once the Roman Empire had conquered, you know, the Greeks and then everybody else. Um, so he, he grew up in a, you know, a polytheistic, there are many gods, um, and these gods are, are very much, um, you know, just kind of play with humans um, and, and, you know, you have to appease the gods. Otherwise, you know, your life could, could get, you know, shattered and destroyed. And, but, you know, maybe if the gods have favor on you, then you're okay, you know, sort of thing. Um, and there was just a lot of, of really awful, you know, practices that, that took place in the, the, the Roman worship of all these gods and, and all of the idolatry and, and immorality that went along with that. Um, but here he is in, in Israel, and you know he, he obviously comes to realize that the Roman gods that he grew up with were, were false. He comes to understand what the, what the Hebrew Bible, what we take as the Old Testament, as the Word of God, uh, what it says about the, the, the foolishness of, of making something or making something up and then worshiping it. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the foolishness of, of, of human beings who will, you know, take a piece of wood and, and with part of it, they'll cook their food. And with the other part of it, they'll make an idol and bow down to it and worship it. And so with one part of the same tree, you burned it up and made your food. And the other part of the same tree, you bowed down and you worshiped it. Like how nonsensical, how illogical is that? And yet, you know, let's not pretend that humans today have, you know, just gotten all past that. Because, you know, we'll, we'll make material things, you know, for our benefit and to make life easier for us and things like that. And then we'll, we'll worship them. You know, I mean, and we'll be controlled by them instead of them being a tool for us. You know, you take a cell phone, which has all sorts of amazing capabilities where we can talk to people all over the world and we can message and we can find all this information. Yet, sometimes we find ourselves unable to be away from it for five minutes. Well, who owns who at that point? Who, you know, is it a tool or is it the master? If you, if you feel angst. That it's not not on you or right next to you or away from you for five minutes. Who's become the tool? Who's become the master? You know, and so let's not pretend that, oh, you know, now, I mean, there is a difference between worshiping, you know, that. But but I, I am talking a little bit about control there. And there are, maybe it's not exactly synonymous, but there are some things that are important there for us to grab a hold of and to say that, you know, we have to, have our identity and our, our purpose and everything wrapped up in Christ, and we can't be controlled by the material things on our earth as humans have been for generation after generation after generation. And so, 
um, life is much more than these things because there's that spiritual key element and we need to get it right. And Cornelius is one who is striving to get it right. And so he's come to believe that you know, there is one true and living God, Yahweh, in Hebrew, um, is the Hebrew name. And he is focused on that, and it says, you know, it, it makes a difference, obviously, in his life, because he's a man who is, who is praying, and a man who is giving. Well, you know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Because actually, before that, it says, you know, to come to, to know God, you have to believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we see here Cornelius is one who is diligently seeking after God. And so there's two things happening at the same time. One, God in his love is seeking to save those who are lost. And there's a human responsibility to, you know, seek to be found, to desire to be found, you know, to throw up the signal flare and say, you know, I'm actually, I'm here and I want, I want to be found. As opposed to, I want to maintain hidden, and I want to maintain hidden so that I can believe what I want and live what I want and do what I want without accountability to an all-powerful, holy God. And so, Cornelius is a great example of one who is seeking to know. And, and when this angel comes to him, which is you know, a, a very unique experience that he has... He does what he's, you know, what he's instructed to do. And he's obviously here a man of authority. He has people that you know, serve him. So he takes you know, two of the household servants and a devout soldier. So it seems like that soldier also, maybe even through Cornelius' influence, has also come to worship the one true God. So now we, so we've got Cornelius' side of it. Now let's get Peter's side of it. So it says in verse 9, the next day as they went on their journey and drew to the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made the food ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up to heaven. Now let's keep reading, because I just want to just get this this whole scene in, in our heads, and then we'll discuss it. It says, verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood there before the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? 
And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he, he, that's Peter, invited them in and lodged with them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And Peter was coming in. And Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go of one to another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked, then for what reason have you sent for me? Now let's stop there you know, for a moment. Um, there's more to the story, and we're going we're gonna to get to that. But I want to make a, a very important and clear distinction at this moment, because what does... You know, what, what has Peter's experience been here in this moment? A couple of things have happened. One, you know, he's been waiting for the food to be prepared. Naturally, he's a little bit hungry. It says he falls into his like, kind of like trance-like state, and he sees this sheet come down with all these animals. And they're animals that, according to the you know, Old Testament law, were unclean. Things like pigs. Maybe there were some shrimp. Or something on the on the sheet as well, uh, but you know th- things that were were generally in in the Old Testament referred to as as unclean things, and he's told to you know rise up to kill it and to eat it. And again, he says, "No, you know, I've never in my entire life I've never touched any of these of these animals. My entire life, never tasted it." Never even come and put his hands on it. Stayed away from it. And the Lord told him three times, showed him that and told him what to do. Now, we need to understand why did God give that instruction in the first place? Back in the Old Testament, God makes this distinction even with food between clean and unclean. And what he's doing there is giving something that the people can you know, experience in their physical selves that will remind them and help them to understand that God is holy and that sin cannot be in his presence. That there's a distinction between God, with God, a distinction with God between what is right and wrong, between which is clean and which is unclean, which is holy and what is not holy. And so they're to, you know, give, they're given this practical Example that they're to live by to remind them all the time. And it's also going to show them how easy it is, um, you know, on a, a physical example of how easy it is spiritually to be unclean. But there's a spiritual point to it all. It's not just about food and what you should eat or, or not eat. God had a spiritual, it was a spiritual lesson. It was a physical thing, but it was a spiritual lesson. But it was for a period of, of time because even Jesus... When he was on, uh, on the earth, he talked about, you know, he said it's in Mark chapter 7, he says, you know, it's not about what goes into your body, 
that defiles you, but what comes out of your heart. Out of your heart, that's where the pride comes from. That's where the lust comes from. That's where the greed comes from. That's the real source of the problem. And it says there, Mark chapter 7, that he therefore made all foods clean. Because again, remember that one of Jesus' responsibilities was to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament. He's fulfilling the Old Covenant and he's giving a New Covenant that's through him that is ratified, that is, that is done at the cross. And then it's proven that it was done through the resurrection. So now, let's just understand this. Peter... For three years has walked with Jesus. He was there when those things were said. He was there when Jesus declared that all the food was now clean and you could eat what you wanted without restriction. That there was no longer this distinction in the foods between clean and unclean. That Jesus had taken care of that. Because guess what? He's, you know, he's God and he's ultimately the, the one who decides the rules and what's right and wrong. What you can do and can't do, should do, shouldn't do. Yet... We are past the crucifixion, we are past the resurrection, we are past Pentecost, we are past the Ethiopian eunuch being saved in, you know, through his encounter with Philip. We're past the Samaritans in mass coming to faith. And he's already seen in the ministry of Jesus, both Gentile and Samaritans believing and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, after all of that, Peter is still there saying, I won't touch a pig. I won't touch a pig. And if that doesn't tell you the power of culture in a person's life, I don't know what will. That doesn't explain the power of culture. That I don't think we could ever get it. Because how could anybody, after three years with Jesus, and all that he's seen and experienced, still be dominated in his mindset about what food he's going to eat based on his culture versus based on what Jesus has told him. Culture is powerful. Culture is really, really powerful. So that's the other side of this lesson because there's two lessons here. One is that God rewards those who seek him and the other is that culture is extremely powerful. Culture is extremely powerful. We have to deal with that and understand that and try to to have some um, objective evaluation of that in our lives. And really the first lesson I think is is actually more about in some ways who God accepts and why, okay, and culture would make that the, the two to be a little more clear on the first one. Okay. So what we do with this now? And so Cornelius said, gives says what happened. Four days ago I was fasting unto this hour, and the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms or your giving is remembered in the sight of God, and send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter, his lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. 
Now, I do want to make one note about Cornelius' culture. Because though he is trying to worship the one true and living God, yet, you know, what does he do when Peter comes into the house? You know, he falls down, you know, to worship him. And that's kind of a carryover to some, uh, perhaps of some of those mythical, you know, beliefs that he, that he had, you know, in, in the past and in the appearance and what he's supposed to do in a situation like that. And so Peter has to set him straight and say, you know, I'm just a man. I'm not anything, you know, special. He's going to explain who Christ is. But Peter understands that he's not Christ and that he shouldn't be worshipped. Nobody should fall down on their feet before him and give him that sort of um, expression. And so he says this, you know, Cornelius wants to hear, he says, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. And, And here, I think, again, we have Cornelius's faith, that even though he doesn't understand it all, I think he kind of knows that he doesn't understand it all, but there's going to be this opportunity here to understand it. And you can see his character, that even in that, he doesn't want to just have that for himself, but he wants to have the other people in his life, the, you know, the soldiers that he cares, that are under his care and under his command, you know, his family, his friends, his neighbors, you know, he invites them to gather in because I don't know exactly what this is going to be. But I know that it's going to be something that's going to change my life and could change your life, too. And so you see that already in his heart. He's, you know, he's an evangelist before he's even really a follower of Jesus. Really cool to see that in his life, that he's somebody who cares about others. He's somebody who cares about other people. And then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, he, that it is he who was ordained by God to be judged of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And so there's a really powerful message that Peter gives, but you see in it also there's somewhat of a, of a coming to understand and to grips with what Jesus has taught him himself. Because he had, under, he had heard the message. What was the message of Jesus to him? Even after the resurrection, Go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups. Yet to this point, you know, Peter is really content, it seems like. So that Peter's content and a lot of the other apostles are content to preach to the Israelites and the Israelites who have been, you know, in Jerusalem, but also the ones who were scattered in different nations. And it's only through, you know, when, when something else happens and there's this move of God in Samaria that, you know, Peter ends up, Going there. And this move of God here where, you know, God works in Cornelius and through the people with him. 
And it's like God is, is having to, to, again, open Peter's mind and to expand his horizons because his culture has given him such a narrow view of what his responsibilities are. Because in his cultural view, his culture has taught him that his responsibilities are to his own people and to no one else. Now, I want us to be really clear. He didn't get that from the Old Testament. He got that through the religious culture of his day. He didn't get that from the Old Testament. And let me just... Let me just prove that. Because he says, uh, you know how unlawful it is, verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. What law says that? It actually has the idea of even entering into another, into a Gentile's home. You, you read the entire Old Testament, you will not find any verse that says that a, a, an Israelite cannot go into a non-Israelite's home. You read the whole Old Testament, you won't find that. So what is he talking about? He says, it's unlawful. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's not talking about the Old Testament laws. He's talking about the, the regulations that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, at the, at, in his time and before his time, had established that it's, it's really according to their culture and to their customs that he wasn't supposed to do that. It didn't have anything to do with what God had said in the Old Testament. It didn't have anything to do with that. In fact, we see, because what we see in the Old Testament even, it's like, hey, were you reading your Old Testament? And they were, but they were reading it through that cultural lens. And so they, they somehow missed or just wrote it off as some sort of crazy exception of you know Rahab, you know the prostitute in Jericho with her and her household who come to faith. They just write it off as some kind of crazy thing that you know Naaman the the Syri- the or the um, um, Armenian commander of that army um, who Elisha healed from you know leprosy by telling him to go baptize himself in the river seven times, who came to be a worshiper of God. Just write it off as an exception that. You know, God sends Jonah to the Ninevites. Just write it off as an exception that in the line of Jesus, you have Ruth, the Moabite woman, who is the great-grandmother of King David. It was all there for him all the time. And here's the trump card, is that God, you know, that as they read the scriptures, as they read the scriptures, Jesus had, or God had, had promised to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's there the whole time that, that God is for everyone and, you know, is seeking. It's there all the time. But yet, instead of seeing that, they would just focus on, you know, the judgments. But if they were just focused on the judgments, they would have understood that the judgments were, were for them more than they were for anyone else because of all the good that they had been given by God, and that with that came such extra responsibility. But instead of that, they only looked at the side of it that said, we have our favor, and these other nations God will judge. The reality is that they were seeing what they wanted to see versus seeing what God was actually saying. 
You think we're incapable of doing that today? And so you have all sorts of people in all sorts of churches who are just believing whatever they want to believe and taking their, the, the, what's popular in the culture as greater than what God says in his word, Old Testament and New Testament. And we'll get to a little bit more of that. But it's kind of ironic almost when Peter says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. It's like, man, dude, you're coming across a little bit slow here because, I mean, you walk with Jesus for three years. Yet look at our own lives. That's all I'd say to that. Just look at your own life. There's sometimes you got to admit that sometimes when you look back and you go, man, I was kind of kind of um, missing it there for a bit on some stuff, and maybe still are, and have to examine that and go, okay, what? Lord, we don't we want want to be sitting here going, oh man, for years we've just been seeing this all wrong about a, any, anything concerning the way of God. And so he gives this message, and, and this is what he says, and I think it's really important to get both sides of this, that God, you know, in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And so, you know, but you can't stop his message there, because he takes that right into the necessity of Jesus Christ. Because what some people want to do is they'll just want to take that, that, that verse and forget the whole message that Peter gives. And take that verse and say, you know what? You see, as long as people believe in some sort of higher power, some sort of God, and they're generally a good person, they'll be okay. Even the Bible says so. But that's a twisting of the scripture. Because as you read it, you see the necessity of preaching. And that whoever believes in him will receive the forgiveness of their sins. That, that there's a requirement there. But what's ex- expected is, is if somebody is, is sincerely seeking, then when they hear the message of Jesus Christ, that that's going to resonate with them. That that message will resonate. Because what's more important here than Cornelius' prayers and more important than his giving is the sincerity of his heart that he really does want, he wants to know God. His giving and his prayers are evidence of that, but on their, their own, they're not sufficient. Because sometimes people pray and sometimes people give strictly because I want to you know, look good. Think about all the Pharisees who even had all the right data. They had all the right information before them, yet their hearts were far from God. And, but looking at the outward appearances, well, certainly they prayed. They prayed everywhere. They you know, prayed out in public streets on the corner. And they prayed in the synagogue and in their homes and everywhere else. Pray, pray, pray. And give, give, give. Here's my gifts that you can see me giving. Because I got these dudes blowing trumpets to let you know that I am putting some money in the box, people. But, what we, but their heart motivation was to be seen by, by men and to be viewed as good by men. And so there wasn't the sincerity of the heart there 
that you obviously have here with Cornelius, because if Cornelius had just been putting on a show, there's no way that God would do what he did for him. He was just putting on a show. There was a reality in his heart. There was a reality in his life that he did indeed want to commune with the true and living God. It's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, it's all too rare of a thing. Okay. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, and here's the grace of God. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. So here we have that scene again. You know, Peter is somewhat astonished, but he's starting to get it now. But these other believers who are with him, who are also Jewish, but they are followers of Jesus. And they're astonished of what God does among them. But, you know, it goes back to that one of those patterns that we've seen. And so what you see happen is that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the, the Jewish people who are, you know, in the process of believing at Pentecost. And that's a testimony that what God has done there is true. And then you find it among the Samaritans. Remember who they are? They're partially Jewish and partially Gentile. And now we have it on those who are just Gentiles. And each step of the way, you know, God is giving testimony that this is real, that this is true, and that, you, that the, the people and even the apostles needed to open their eyes and to see that Jesus was serious and that God was serious about his mission to make disciples of people from every people group. That that really was indeed the mission. And it's like you've heard the mission, but now you've got to practice the mission. Now you've got to practice the mission. And so God, in his grace, has given them this great testimony that now there's no way that they can deny it. So when you get to chapter 11, it says, The apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, again, get who's saying that. That's, you know, that's the other apostles and the other people in the, in the church there are the ones who are saying that. Even though they, notice that, they had heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And yet they're more concerned that Peter broke their cultural norms their man-made traditions, their man-made regulations and concerns. They're more concerned about that than they are that people have come to believe and to trust in the true and living God and become followers of Jesus Christ. That's astonishing. In many ways, I find it to be shockingly sad, but it's a temporary thing. Because then, we're not going to reread it, But if you read verses 4 through 15, Peter says, well, here's what happened. And that's the whole story that we just read. So I'm not going to read it 
a second time for you now, but you can go back and do that. Verses 4 through 15. And then 16, he says, Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So it's like they got their, their thing, then they're put in their place through the truth, by the truth. So they've got the lies that they believed in and all the ill conceptions and, and wrong sorted cares, you know, the, the wrong direction of what they are prioritizing and seeing. And then the truth smacks that down. And then they're in silence. And you can take that silence like, wait a second. And then there's a praising of God because they, what, what the realization is, is that the truth is so much better than the lie that they had been believing. That compa- I mean, the, 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 that the lie that they were believing had been really kind of bad, negative you know, news that you know, God only accepted the Israelites. And then their minds are open to wait. God's love and grace, his salvation, so much bigger than I thought it was. But yet for me, I mean, I can't help but read it with a certain sadness because their whole lives they had access to the Old Testament scriptures. They had walked with Jesus and seen him in his ministry, and yet they still had so much to learn. And one of the reasons that I say that is because in my life and in each one of our lives where we have our hang-ups, where we don't see the things the way that God does, we have his scripture that tells us how we should see it. We have the testimony. We see the life that Jesus lived as we read the Gospels. We have the Holy Spirit that lives within us to convict us. And yet, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. when we look back and we go, Lord, I, I didn't see that for so long of how you saw it. I was so blinded by my you know, preconceived ideas. I was so blinded by my, the culture that I, that I grew up in that I didn't see the, the truth about whatever this thing is. And that that was a limiter. That that was a limiter. And maybe that even caused some other people some problems. Because I share my, my negative perspective. Or this, say this way, the perspective that wasn't the truth of God. It also shows... When we talk about culture, it was really, at that time, the Jewish nationalism, the Israelite nationalism that steered the ship on that. It was nationalism that did it. And again, it's not wrong to care about your nation. It's not wrong to you know, root for your, 
nation in the Olympics and to hope your nation does well and to pray for your nation and all of these sort of things. But when it becomes at the expense of others, when it comes at we are higher and better than and intrinsically worth more, now we start stepping into nationalism. And that's a very dangerous thing. And we see nations all over our world shifting again in that direction. Oh, this pendulum swings. And so, you know, we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. And you have to remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And in comparison, your earthly citizenship is very, very small. Very, very small. Again, to see how God sees... And so we can have these allegiances, whether it's to nationalism, whether it's to materialism. There can be all sorts of isms that your allegiances can go towards. And that can hinder and keep us from Jesus and following him fully as our Savior and as our King. It's like you want to think that you as a follower of Jesus or as a follower of Jesus today are not affected by a culture of materialism. You want to think that you and I as followers of Jesus today aren't, aren't affected by a culture that has no standards when it comes to sexual activity. You want to think that you're unaffected by a culture that has no bounds in the violence that it glorifies. You want to think that you're immune to all of it, that you can see it all, you can almost you can participate from the sidelines in it all, and yet be unaffected by it. And it's just, it's a, I really believe it's a law, you know, from the pit of hell. Really do. And it's like, you know, in our culture today is so sexualized that even our kids are being sexualized at very, very young ages. I didn't have this, I didn't even have this part of my notes today, but I just feel compelled <laughs> to, to say it. That our kids are being sexualized and materialized and objectified, and their value is being so misplaced. And so many times, you know, followers of Jesus, even true followers of Jesus, are just not even questioning, just going right along with it, right along with the flow. Because it's this huge tidal wave. And it's hard to go the other, you know, any sort of resistance to it is really, really difficult. But, you know, what do you say about a nation when, you know, between Christmas and New Year's, in malls, there were, you know, these riots in malls all over the, the nation of these fights and people destroying things and being hurt and things like that, just springing up all over the place. That's a product. That's not the problem. That's the result of the problems. I mean, that's, I mean, and that's a tiny example. That's a tiny example. But we live in a culture that loves sin and glorifies and glorifies it. And yet at the same time, still, the vast majority of people in our nation will say, I believe there's a God. 
Well, so what? Demons believe that. You know, I mean, what difference is it making in our perspective, our attitudes, and our practices? How are we actually different in the world that we live in? Is it just that we have this faith in Jesus and this hope that one day he'll come back and make everything okay, but until then, we just go right along with the world and live like it and do like it and applaud it? Good show. You know, I just have to question that in my own life. And I ask it to question it in your own life. Because at the end of the day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is about, again, it's not about salvation, but it's about reward and lost reward, particularly from when you know Jesus. Like, what did you do with the gifts and everything that he entrusted you with? There is some accountability before that. I know that accountability is not exactly a cool thing in our world today. But there is accountability before Jesus. And I don't mean that in a harsh way. Whenever we say that, you know, everybody automatically wants to say, well, wait, we've got to remember, you know, Jesus loves us and all that. It's like, of course he does. Of course I'm not negating that. But are we ever just going to get back to the, you know, get a little bit of the other side of the coin, which, is, which has accountability in it? You can give either message so much or too much that you forget what's on the other side. You, you can talk about love to the point of being deceived and thinking there's no accountability. And you can talk about accountability to the point of being deceived that there's no love. You've got to have some balance there in those things. But what I'm trying to get to this, less, if we wrap up here, of why, the, that, why it matters that to walk in the liberty that is the path of Jesus, we have to avoid the ditches on either side. There's a path to walk in, and that path is the liberty that is in Jesus Christ. But there's a ditch on either side of that. And one side is legalism, and the other side is license. And some of you have grown up in very you know, legalistic, you grew up in very legalistic environments, and those things can certainly be negatively affecting your perceptions. And there can be a tendency to either go even more legalistic or to swing to the other side and Go to license, and the same thing's true for license. You can grow up in an environment of license where there are no rules, and you know anything goes, and do whatever you want to do. And well, okay, well I'll take that even five steps further. Or hey, that's not good, so I got to swing way over here, and I got to live this life that's dictated by all the rules because I got to have some structure about this thing. The sin that legalism commits is that it restricts what God has not restricted. And we have to call it a sin because it usually does stem from pride. It says, you know, that I'm so much better than other people because I've even added onto the list of what God wants from me things that God didn't even put on there. That's how much better I am is that I even have a list of things that God hasn't asked me to do that I'm still going to do just to show you how much better I am. It comes from pride. It comes from pride. And that sort of thing can cause all sorts of problems. And, and let me just give you a silly, silly rule, silly example of what something like that looks like. Be part of, you know, in a church, church says, can't wear jeans. Well, okay. In the scriptures, it says to be modest. There's nothing, I don't think they had jeans, but it doesn't even matter. What are we talking about here? 
And so I actually, as a teenager, I witnessed a young man come in who hadn't been to a church meeting in weeks, months. And one of the first things somebody comes up and says to him is, what are you doing here wearing jeans? What? I'm sitting there like 13 years old going, but Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, a guy looks at the heart. And you can have somebody 40, 50 years old just not get that, live their whole life with a Bible and not get that. That's infuriating. How you live your whole life with a Bible and not get that? I mean, it's so fundamentally basic. Worried about the genes somebody has on and not the condition of their soul. That's what legalism looks like. Kind of at an extreme, but that's what, that shows you the danger of it and how it can hinder and keep people from God. Because it puts these barriers to God that are man-made. But don't think that license is a problem because it's a sin of excess. There's no moderation. There's no limits to the food or the drink or the sex. There's no regulations of who to have sex with. There's no limitations of how much stuff to have. Whatever you can possibly grab and put into your hands, you stock your stuffing of life as full as you possibly can for your own benefit and enjoyment. And so other people, you know, the mission of God gets the crumbs that are left over. The mission of God gets the crumbs. So don't, and license promotes the pride of I deserve and have rights to do whatever I want, whenever I want, to have what I want and to have it when I want it. And it doesn't know anything about biblical moderation because a lot of times the things that we're talking about here are good. It's just that they're to excess. A lot of times the, there's a, the t- things are good, but the timing is important. But there's the pride that says, no, we know better than God. We know better than God, and so it's better to live together before you're married, even if God says not to. We know better than God. Well, then we look at the like research, it says, well, people don't know better than God. The research says, you're shooting your relationship in the head. I mean, but again, we want to say we know better than God. So that's what we're getting at here. But that pendulum can swing. But there's a third way, and that way is the, the liberty in Jesus. And that you have to determine that your liberty in Jesus will be defined by what the scripture says and not based on what the popular culture gives you. That God's truth is greater than cultural trend. Because there's all sorts of trends that can come along. I mean, there's, there's trends that come along that will put you to, I mean, I mean, whichever way you want to do it. There's a trend that will come along and put you to poverty. And there's a trend that will come along and put you to excess. And there's a trend that will come along and this, that, and the other thing. Well, what is the word? How does God want me to live according to the word? There's the, here's the difficulty 
of this third way of the liberty is that it's, it's the harder way. It's the harder way. And I don't mean it's harder to practice it. What I mean is it's harder to understand it and to find it. Because the easy thing to do is to go, with the, to go with legalism because, hey, I got my list of rules and I got my things and I got, you know, if I just do this stuff, then I'm good. I'm good. And the license is easy because, hey, this is what the world's doing. We don't have to buck the trend. Whatever they say isn't a sin, isn't a sin. Whatever they say is a sin, is a sin. So we just do whatever our culture does. When our culture tells us to buy, we buy. When our culture tells us to sell, we sell. When our culture tells us to eat, we eat. And what we don't, we don't. And therefore, that's pretty simple too. But what's more difficult is to say, Jesus, according to your word, by your Holy Spirit, inform, instruct me that I live how you want me to live. And that when I'm making my decisions, I'm making them for your glory and for your honor. And that it is in the the liberty that you give me. You know what that liberty is? That liberty is to have Jesus as your king. There's Jesus as my king and to live in his love. So to live in the love, the fellowship with Jesus and to, to live according to his ways. That's our liberty. It's, you know, the liberty of Christ. You know, people go, well, I've got liberty in Jesus. Wait, you have liberty in Jesus to sin? Excuse me? No. Uh, you, I got liberty in Jesus. Liberty in Jesus to put a bunch of rules on the people that God never put on people? No. That's not liberty in Jesus. Liberty in Jesus is to, say, is to submit to him and to surrender to him and say, Jesus, you're my king. Let me live according to your ways for your glory and for your honor and for the greatest benefit of the people around me. The liberty that we have in Christ is not selfish. Not selfish. So why this matters that we do that hard work is so that the name of Jesus doesn't get drugged to the mud by how we live our lives, that others are not hindered from believing in Jesus because we've gone to legalism or license and that we don't miss out on the joy of liber- living in the liberty of Jesus, that we don't exchange it for the slavery of license or the tyranny of legalism. Understand, license is slavery to sin. It's a slavery. That sounds ironic and opposite when it's just do whatever you want, but that's a great slavery. And legalism is a tyranny. And you'll never be able to satisfy it. They're living under the authority of a tyrant. The freedom of Jesus is not the freedom to just do whatever you want whenever you want. The freedom of Jesus is the grace and power given to you to live in a joyful relationship with God. That's the liberty of Jesus. To live in a joyful relationship with God. That's the liberty he gives us. And that's a beautiful thing. But to give us that liberty, to give us that freedom, it did come at a cost. And that's why we take that bread and we take that cup every Sunday and remember the Lord as he instructed us to. 
to remember the price that was paid. As we take that bread and take that cup. And that's why when we have this open time and we say, okay, what song should we sing? What verse should we read? And what should I pray about? And what should I say? We go back to the cross and we say, you know, does this encourage us to, to Jesus, to remember him, to remember our liberty and freedom in him and to, to not have the legalism and to not have the license, but to have the liberty in Jesus? Does it point us to our Savior and our King? Hey, you know what? If it doesn't, it may be fully appropriate and great for a different time. You know, we have other forms for other things. But in this time, there should be no doubt when we walk away from this table that we worship Jesus together. That he was the one we were here for. He's the one we came to remember. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we just want to give you the praise and the glory and the honor. Lord, how many times have we known your word, but yet the power of sin or the power of culture or the power of laziness or whatever it was hindered us. So this morning, Lord, we, ask, we do ask that you would help us to lay down our legalism and help us to lay down our license and help us to lay them at your feet and to surrender to you and to say, yes, Jesus, I want to live in your liberty and then to pursue that. Help us in these days to do just that. We thank you for what Peter and the apostles and the others with them learned about the greatness of your grace and love. Thankful for the example of Cornelius and seeing someone seek you and to be found by you. And Lord Jesus, we pray that even in in Athens, some people like Cornelius would come to know you that would have great influence on others. For your name and for your glory for the good of everyone's lives that live in this city. Lord, so much so much in our world today, and at the end of the day, Jesus, you are the solution, and help us not to forget that. And all of our trying to solve problems, that we understand that the greatest needs of humans are spiritual, and that ultimately that dictates everything else. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.